Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. The Humane Society of the United States has filed a complaint with the Federal Trade Commission accusing Neiman Marcus of selling products, three types of boots, advertised as being made of fake fur or faux fur, but actually containing real fur. Now, if you follow the fur labeling issue, you will recall that this is not the first time Neiman Marcus and other big retailers have been called out for such transgressions. And indeed, the humane side of the United States has been persistent and aggressive in its work to end deceptive and fraudulent labeling. And imagine how you'd feel if you purchased and had been wearing a garment or boots or carrying a handbag labeled as being composed of synthetic materials, only to learn later that it was not synthetic as advertised, but was indeed from an animal that was horrifically killed to make your garment. Well, personally, it would make me sick and then very angry, and I'd want to learn what I can do to punish the store and the manufacturer for putting me through that. The use of faux fur in fashion is increasing. The quality of the material, I've read, is improving, and a growing number of designers are choosing to use it. And it seems like great numbers of enlightened people are adopting faux fur instead of the animal product. Personally, I'm not a fan of fake fur. It just seems strange to me to want to be reminded about an animal part on my body or on my handbag, but maybe I'm an outlier there. So what's going on in the humane side of the United States Neiman Marcus case and what is the history of false labeling in the fashion industry? Here to delve into this with us is Pierre Grabowski, Policy and Enforcement Manager for the HSUS's Fur Free Campaign. Welcome to the program, Pierre. Thank you so much for having me. Pierre, so we know there's a lot of history preceding this current episode, but can you please start with this one? What is the HSUS claiming in this current complaint? Well, the Humane Society of the United States filed a petition with the Federal Trade Commission. That's the federal agency uh, enforced, or the federal agency uh, tasked by Congress with uh, enforcing the Fur Products Labeling Act and generally protecting American consumers from misrepresentation and fraud. We filed a petition with that agency asking for enforcement action against Neiman Marcus, which is the upscale retailer that uh, sells in the United States in a number of brick-and-mortar locations as well as online. Uh, the petition asked for enforcement action against Neiman Marcus for selling three different items, um, from November 2014 until March of 2015 that were advertised, all three as faux fur or fake fur, and all three, uh, when I bought them and, uh, and looked at them and, and analyzed them, found them all to be animal fur. One of them actually had a sticker on each of the boots that also said faux fur. Mm. So it said faux fur in the ad, faux fur on the actual boots, um, and then unless you knew how to tell animal fur from fake fur, if you were a consumer, uh, you were stuck thinking you had bought faux fur. Now, luckily, the other two boots that we bought both contained stickers on them that indicated that contrary to what Neiman Marcus said on their website, they actually contained rabbit fur. And just a preliminary uh, analysis of the fur uh, leads me to believe that it probably is rabbit fur for all three. The HSUS has been following this for a long time, Pierre. How did this first get on their radar screen? I've been here since 2005, um, focusing on the fur trade, 
And I believe it was in November or December of 2006. I mean, we were, we were somewhat aware of the problem of, of animal fur being misrepresented. And in fact, if you research the history of the fur trade, uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the day after uh, the animal fur trade was commercialized, uh, the first misrepresentation didn't occur. Uh, it was actually so bad um, at the turn of the century in the United States uh, that starting in the 30s and finalizing in 1951, Congress passed the Fur Products Labeling Act because so many different furriers were misrepresenting animal fur, usually upselling it, including as species that didn't even exist. So the problem was really, really vast in the United States. So that's when the Fur Products Labeling Act was passed. Um, so if you kind of jump forward to, to when we're uh, looking into the trade a little bit, we actually got a tip that uh, Burlington Coat Factory was going to be coming out with a circular um, that winter in December, I believe, of 2006 that had a picture of a garment that contained animal fur but was actually uh, advertised in the circular and um, I confirmed on posters in the stores as faux fur uh, when in fact it was actually animal fur. So we started looking into that, going to the stores and looking, and that was kind of the rabbit hole. And once we started looking, we just fell right down it and we fell into what is a nationwide problem at retailers of all price points, brick and mortar and online, real fur being sold as faux, as well as real fur being sold unlabeled, um, which led to us helping to pass the Truth and Fur Labeling Act, which closed that loophole, um, and also lots of real fur being sold as a different animal than what it actually is. A lot of raccoon dog being sold as raccoon, which is a completely different animal, and that continues to this day. All of that continues to this day. Okay, so what would be the reason retailers sell real fur and say it's fake? You know, that's a question I've asked myself a lot. Um, and I, I think we, we can't give an answer for any specific instance without talking to everyone involved in the manufacturing and selling of that product and seeing all the paperwork um, going all the way back to probably the factory in China. Um, but generally speaking, we think that it's some combination of intentional misrepresentation especially at the manufacturing level, and then a whole lot of sloppy or non-existent quality control at the retail level. So it's some combination of that and probably some additional factors. But at the end of the day, I came to the conclusion that I really didn't care what the excuses were that the retailers were making. Yeah. Their job is to protect their customers from getting something that they didn't want. They should take it upon themselves to make sure that what they're calling something is actually what it is. And what we found is that some companies like Neiman Marcus, a multi-billion dollar revenue company, um, seems to be either unwilling or unable to stop selling animal fur as faux fur. Hmm. And you mentioned rabbits. What other animals are we talking about? And where are the garments and products from, Pierre? Well, animal fur in general, um, a lot of what we are looking at is uh, trimmed products. So trimmed hoods on jackets, trimmed gloves, trimmed shoes. You're much less likely to see a full fur garment, like a full fur coat being sold as faux fur, because those are typically sold in fur salons where uh, 
the people who are selling them are actually uh, they understand and know fur, um, and they're going to know what they're selling you for the most part. Versus a lot of this that we're seeing is uh, the trims, the trim jackets, the, the the gloves, the boots. Those are being sold at mixed merchandise retailers, where the uh, the salespeople. And the copy editors simply don't know as much about fur as you would get from a first line. But that's really no excuse because, of course, they could always hire a quality control person to be checking all that, which right. many of these companies don't seem to be willing or able to do. But So across the board for fur, it's uh, pretty much any animal that's got animal fur, any animal that's in the wild in the U.S., with the exception of endangered animals, which are not supposed to be caught, um, foxes, rabbit, mink, uh, beaver, uh, chinchillas are raised. The, the, by and away, the largest animal being raised and killed for fur, mink. That's over half of all the animals raised and killed, and that's primarily for f- full fur coats. Um, but when we're talking about misrepresented items being sold as faux, a lot of that is rabbit uh, and then probably raccoon dog. I'd say raccoon dog is probably the top item that's being sold as faux fur, and then also rabbit and some other animals like coyote. So the raccoon dogs, are they raised on farms or are they wild? And, and in what countries? Yeah, the raccoon dog was something I actually didn't really know about until 2006. I, that was one of the first um, animals that we came across um, in, in the misrepresentation uh, investigations that we were doing. And it was being sold a lot as faux fur or raccoon fur or coyote. The raccoon dog is actually a member of the canid or dog family, so it's in the same large um, uh, taxonomic family as coyotes and foxes and wolves. All the canids, uh, for, for the morphology and placement in that taxonomic family, those are all considered the dog family, They're the broad term dog, uh, not domestic dog. It's not a domestic dog. It's a wild species. They're indigenous to uh, China, uh, parts of uh, uh Europe uh, above China, and there's also a subspecies in Japan. Now, the ones that are being made into garments are being raised in tiny battery cages. Uh, the number one producer of raccoon dog fur is China and probably followed by Finland. And they're being raised in small wire mesh cages like you would see mink or fox. Uh, and then they're being killed. Um, there's actually been some documentation of raccoon dogs skinned alive in the production process because they were improperly stunned or killed prior to the skinning process. And there's also uh, anal electrocution that's used, um, which is also the primary killing method for foxes. Don't go away. We're learning about issues related to fur labeling. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and I want to thank you for joining us on Animals Today. Each week, we explore the wide variety of new and important issues concerning the welfare and rights of animals, how people treat them, and where they fit in society. From whale protectors risking their own lives on the open seas to lawmakers fighting to pass legislation to assist animals to kids volunteering at their local shelter, Animals Today provides timely and in-depth analysis and interviews with experts and advocates from around the world. To listen, join us every week on this station, listen on iTunes, or go to animalstodayradio.com, where you can access and listen to all the prior shows. And like us on Facebook and share your views. 
Much of our financial support comes from the nonprofit group Advancing the Interests of Animals. That's AIanimals.org. So check them out. This is Dr. Lori, and thanks for listening. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back to the program. Okay, let's bring everyone, including myself, up to speed on labeling issues related to animal products over the past decade or so. In 2007, the Humane Society of the United States filed a petition to the Federal Trade Commission alleging that several major retailers and fashion designers were manufacturing and selling fur garments that were falsely or misleadingly advertised. Pierre, tell us about that, please. Like I mentioned earlier, we started looking um, closely at the retail industry in December of 2006 based on a tip that there was going to be a jacket sold as faux fur that was actually real. And once we started looking, we just started finding misrepresented and uh, mislabeled animal fur garments everywhere. So uh, we started collecting that evidence and uh, we put it together into a petition, which is basically a, it's a legal document that says, FTC, please do something to protect consumers, and here's all the evidence that we've gathered for you. Please act on it. Um, so we submitted uh, the evidence we had found to the Federal Trade Commission in 2007. Um, and since then, um, when we gather evidence, uh, we, we, have, we have submitted several more petitions after that to the Federal Trade Commission um, asking them to take action on misrepresented animal products. I think at this point we've submitted uh, three large ones and a number of smaller ones. Uh, the most recent uh, multi-retailer one was in 2011, and that had uh, m- many, many retailers and many, many brands, and then we submitted Obviously, uh, just a couple weeks ago, uh, a, a petition to the Federal Trade Commission asking for enforcement action against Neiman Marcus for selling three different types of boots uh, with animal fur trim that Neiman Marcus's website described uh, erroneously as faux fur. What was the outcome of the petition in 2007? We haven't seen as much action by the Federal Trade Commission on our petitions as we would like. There has not, in fact, been a single monetary fine handed out to our knowledge by the Federal Trade Commission since we started investigating and submitting petitions. The, the hardest penalty so far by the Federal Trade Commission has been to place three of the retailers that we found uh, selling real for as foe um, in 2011 under what's called a consent agreement or a consent order where the retailers agree that if they sell animal furs foe again, then they will be held in uh, violation of that consent order and can be fined uh, $16,000 per item uh, per day that the violation occurs. The problem with that is 
we have found uh, violations by two of those three subsequent to that enforcement order. So clearly that enforcement order or that consent order did not do the job to make these companies take the law and protecting consumers seriously. So we have submitted actually last year an, an earlier petition naming Dr. J's for being in violation of that consent order with a number of items. And now here we are again finding a second of the three um, bad actors doing the same thing. So we think it's really time for the Federal Trade Commission to step up and hand out some, some substantial and uh, some substantial and meaty enforcement penalties so that these notorious bad actors will uh, start following the law. Should consumers call the FTC to ask them to act? We're not really sure what exactly it's going to take to get the Federal Trade Commission to take this matter seriously. We submitted a number of petitions to them involving many, many items that were sold as faux or as the wrong species to the public. Um, we've, these petitions contain an exhaustive amount of evidence, um, including very expensive tests conducted by uh, ourselves, um, which we think is that's the job of the Federal Trade Commission. And, and as a nonprofit, we, we shouldn't be spending this much money um, enforcing, attempting to enforce a law that we actually don't have the ability to enforce. So, we're really hoping um, that the Federal Trade Commission will, will see this latest petition and decide it's finally time to, to act on it. And, and in the meantime, um, we've, we've taken uh, steps on our own, including filing a lawsuit against a number of retailers in D.C. court um, in 2008, accusing them of violating the D.C. Consumer Protection Act. Um, and we actually reached uh, settlements with a number of those uh, a number of those retailers and Neiman Marcus was one of the companies that we sued in 2008 um, and the court entered a judgment against Neiman Marcus uh, where they were ordered not to violate the law and uh, to pay us 25,000 excuse me to pay us a, a fine or, or an amount of money to cover costs and expenses um, for our work on the project. In 2009, with the assistance of New York Assemblywoman Linda Rosenthal, you conducted an undercover investigation looking into fur labeling in New York City. Can you explain a little bit about the background on this? And, and there's a great video online showing this. Where, where did that go? Right, so yeah, uh, Assemblymember Linda Rosenthal is really fantastic. Um, We've been, we were trying to close the fur labeling loophole for a number of years uh, at the federal level, which allowed uh, most fur-trimmed jackets and other fur-trimmed items to go unlabeled. So in the interim, uh, we actually were able to help pass a number of state laws that close that loophole. And Assemblymember Rosenthal was the champion of the successful passage of the one in New York State. And she actually has gone undercover with me twice in uh, in her state, in Manhattan. We go in her district um, and in, in, in the area that she represents, checking to see whether or not companies are actually following the law that she helped pass. And unfortunately, we tend to find that that is not the case. That's an issue where when we find these violations, we need uh, the law enforcement agencies, both at the state and the national level, to take substantial action um, uh, adequate to get these uh, big retailers to take notice. 
can you review and describe the laws that are in place nationally or in states that regulate this activity, Pierre? Sure. The federal law that um, covers the selling of animal fur products at the retail level is called the Fur Products Labeling Act. Simple enough. That was passed in 1951, um, and unfortunately it had a loophole in it that allowed, uh, like I mentioned, a lot of the trimmed items to go unlabeled. And we were actually successful in helping to close that, and that was signed into law in 2010 by President Obama, so that now when you go shopping either online or in the store in the United States, any product of wearing apparel, that's anything that covers your body, not handbags, but everything else, gloves, hats, jackets, um, anything that's got animal fur and covers your body, yeah. if it has any amount of animal fur on it, regardless of the amount, it must say so on the label or hang tag. It's got to give the name of the animal, the country in which the animal was killed, which is called the country of origin, and then a few other things like whether or not it was died. Um, but we thought that was really important to pass. So at a minimum, if you were opposed to buying or wearing animal fur, as 37% of Americans are, um, that you could make that decision. Now, there's also state laws um, that were passed. A couple of them existed prior um, to us closing the loophole. Um, well, a couple of them existed prior to us even starting. They were passed, I believe, in the 40s and 50s. And then a number of states, we helped pass laws um, as we were working on the federal law. But there's a couple of states that have passed their own laws as well. But the federal law um, covers every shopping experience that you should have in brick-and-mortar stores or online as a United States uh, consumer. Very good. Pierre Grabowski, we're talking about fur and faux fur. Don't go away. You're listening to Animals Today. program we're speaking with Pierre Grabowski with the Humane Society of the United States. Let's talk about faux fur, Pierre. Are designers and consumers happy with the product? Can the designers be more creative or accomplish something with faux fur that can't be done with the real fur? Well, the first the answer to the first part of the question is yes. And what we're seeing is um, Faux fur has actually improved dramatically in the last 10 or 20 years, um, and improvements continue to occur as more designers and retailers um, switch to uh, switch to fake fur rather than animal fur, so they can avoid avoid the cruelty issues involved with animal fur and the misrepresentation issues. Um, so obviously, as there's more money going into the faux fur market you have more money that can be spent on R&D to make a better product. So if you feel some of the new fake fur, especially the short hair stuff um, that's coming out now compared to something like 10 years ago, night and day, some of the new fake fur um, feels almost indistinguishable from real rabbit fur. It's, it's really amazing. Um, so we definitely encourage people, um, consumers, designers, retailers, um, if you want the look and feel of animal fur, but you want to avoid the cruelty issues, the environmental issues, um, the misrepresentation issues, then yes, absolutely use faux fur. Uh, but the problem is, as more and more people are turning to faux fur because they like the aesthetic, um, but they want to get they want to get away from the cruelty, then you have more people who can be potentially duped um, by 
the misrepresentation by companies like Neiman Marcus when they call a product faux fur or right. fake fur, and it's actually animal fur. So at the end of the day, um, we tell consumers you've got to learn how to tell animal fur from fake fur, and you can do it pretty easily with some, some tips that we can teach you. That way, um, when you buy a product that you think is fake fur, just quickly double-check it and just be sure you got what you wanted. Very, very good. So how can a consumer know for sure that a garment contains no fur or no animal products for that matter? Okay, so we have three tips that we tell people, um, and the first thing is actually look at the tips. So look at the tips of the animal of the unknown sample, the unknown fiber. You don't know whether it's fake fur or animal fur. If it's animal hair um, and it hasn't been sheared, it should taper to a fine point, like a cat's whisker, or a sewing needle, or a sharpened pencil. And obviously, you need good eyesight, and you need good lighting if you're doing it in the store. And some hairs are so fine, it's almost impossible to see them with a naked eye, like chinchilla. But if it's a, a thick guard hair on, like, a coyote or a raccoon dog or another animal that has thick guard hairs, you should see with the naked eye very clearly that it tapers to a fine point. So if you see that, that's animal fur. Yeah. Now, if you don't, you, you're not sure, because it could have been sheared. Sheared mink is pretty common. And fake fur is actually different types of extruded plastics. Um, and during the extrusion process, uh, the extruding process, they just shear it straight across. So both fake fur and sheared animal fur will look the same if it's cut straight across. So tips, tapering, that's animal fur. If not, you gotta do another step. The second step is you're basically, you want to look and see what the hairs are coming out of because animal fur is literally an animal skin with the hair still attached. So it should look just like if you look at the hairline of, you know, the person like, you know, your, your, your husband or wife or kid, you're basically looking for that. You're looking for hairs that are going into skin. Um, if you look close enough, you'd actually be able to see the pores. Whereas fake fur is made like carpet. It's got a mesh backing made out of fabric and then the tufts of synthetic fiber, the acrylic or mod acrylic polyester nylon, are woven into that and both ends stick out. So if you push the hairs apart, you should be able to see skin, that's animal fur, or a mesh or fiber backing, and that's fake fur. Now, it's not always easy to tell, especially if it's been dyed. Uh, all three of the items in our latest FTC petition um, regarding Neiman Marcus are dyed black. And what that does is the hair, the hairs absorb the dye, but so does the skin. So the contrast between the two is almost zero. So it's really hard to tell the, the material. Um, you now, obviously, if you own the item, you can pop some stitches and turn it over and look at the exposed backing. But um, that's, that's a pretty unfair thing to ask a consumer to have to do because retailers like Neiman Marcus are unwilling or unable to uh, stop misrepresenting animal for his foe. Now the third, the third test is, now this one's a, this is only for adults, and you absolutely cannot do this in the store, this is only if you own the product. You basically pluck a few of the, the fibers, your unknown sample, and then you carefully move them over to an area where there's no, nothing else flammable around, like over a plate or a table. Hold them with a pair of tweezers, light them with a cigarette lighter, uh, because that's odorless, unlike matches. Um, blow it out and you smell it. And if it smells like burning human hair, that's animal hair. Mm. If it smells like different types of burning plastic and each of the different plastics smells differently, that's fake fur. So obviously this is only for adults. 
very careful adults at that and don't do it in the store unless you want to get a free trip downtown. Understood. Those were great tips. Thank you, Pierre. Are there any retailers or stores that people can rely upon that have perfect track records in providing cruelty-free products or at the very least completely reliable labeling? I'm hesitant to ever say that because retailers change so often and there's so much turnover among the um, the executives and, uh, and other people, uh, and even companies with good intentions will occasionally have products slip into the supply chain and not get caught. But we do, con- we do have a list of fur-free retailers and designers and brands on our website. Um, it's uh, humanesociety.org backslash fur-free, um, and you can find a list of companies that have pledged to stop selling fur. So that's a good place to start. Um, of course, you always double-check everything just to be sure. And then we have two companies that we actually work closely with, and they're both run by animal advocates. It's Donna Sayers, Fabulous Furs, and then Imposter by Jacqueline Sharp. And those are both run by, those are both faux fur companies run by animal advocates. So those are companies you can be pretty solidly confident in. Um, but uh, for everyone else, I, even the, one, the companies that are fur-free, I always encourage you just to double-check. It's better to be safe than sorry. Pierre, you heard my introduction, and you know how shocked and distraught I would be if I was deceived and purchased a product containing animal fur when I thought it was faux fur. What recourse would I have? Well, if you bought a product that was sold as fake fur, um, either online or in store, or the the salesperson misrepresented to you, you could take action at the federal level um, by filing a consumer complaint with the Federal Trade Commission. You could take action at the state level by contacting the state's attorney general office, the attorney general's office, um, and that's, the, that's the, the head law enforcement agency um, in each state. And, of course, you can contact us, uh, and we can look into it. It's furfree at humanesociety.org, and, uh, and we can take a look at it. Um, you can also contact the company. I can contact the media, too. Um, we find that some of the less reputable companies will try to sweep these sorts of things under the rug and that it's better to make sure that a third party knows so that they're held accountable. Pierre, what issues are on the horizon? China's economic growth has been pretty substantial to say, <laughs> to put it mildly, over the past 20 years. Um, and that's led to a lot of fur consumption mm. um, by the many, many nouveau riche in China. Um, but we think that's starting to finally taper down um, due to a crackdown on corruption and graft in China by the top officials. Um, it's our understanding that a substantial amount of the animal fur that was being purchased and, um, and sold in China was being used uh, as gifts to local politicians to help grease the wheels on various projects. So we're hopeful that the Chinese consumption will start going down um, and that will help animals nationwide because it's obviously a very large com- country and even a small percentage of growth there can lead to uh, the growth of production. Um, other than that, I mean, I think consumers need to be aware that animal fur continues to be sold as fake fur uh, probably everywhere, certainly in the United States. Uh, animal fur is being sold as the wrong species. Um, right now, bobcats continue to be killed uh, for their pelts. Uh, they continue to demand a very high price uh, for their pelts, um, and that's happened in the United States. And also, something a lot of people don't know is that 
the United States is probably the number one trapping country in the world. We, we trap millions of animals for the fur trade every year. So along with the, the vast amount of suffering and death that goes into uh, or, or that, that the animals in the United States experience in traps, there's also a, a quite a substantial amount or, or number of domestic dogs and cats who were injured or killed each year in these traps. Um, and that's, that's something a lot of people uh, don't know is that whenever you set a trap in the woods, uh, that's, that's an inanimate object. It doesn't know what it's clamping shut on. So anything that triggers it is going to trigger it, whether that be a coyote or a domestic dog. So uh, I really wish that I could, I could get uh, any potential fur buyer to think about whether or not they would be okay with their dog being accidentally killed in a trap so that they can uh, wear an unnecessary trim on their jacket. Pierre Grabowski, thank you for providing your expertise and thanks to Humane Society of the United States for actively pursuing this important issue. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, this is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and I want to thank you for listening to Animals Today. Make sure to visit us on animalstodayradio.com, where you will see all our previous shows and where you can download them free. That's animalstodayradio.com, or you can listen on iTunes. Also, make sure to like us on Facebook and join the discussion. Animals Today gets a lot of its support from the nonprofit group Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit them at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. And I hope you'll consider making a donation to help pay for the ongoing broadcast of Animals Today. Each week on Animals Today, we strive to bring you the highest quality, most up-to-date information about all animals, how we treat them, and their place in society, while promoting greater respect and kindness towards them. So thanks for your support. That website again is aianimals.org. And thanks for listening. I'm Bob Dorigo Jones, and this is Let's Be Fair. A few years ago, when our teenage son was recovering from a head injury, we struggled to find something that would help him pass the days in intensive care. Watching TV made his headaches worse. So did reading. Then, we found a wonderful little product in the hospital gift shop called Buckyballs. Our son spent hours making objects out of the little magnets, and they helped make his hospital stay bearable. Then, to our surprise, a federal agency sued the maker of Buckyballs to ban their sale. Despite warnings on the magnets to keep them away from small children to prevent accidental swallowing, the agency said no one could use the magnets, not even adults. Let's be fair, it was a clear case of government overreach, and a federal court has now overturned the agency's ruling. The court pointed out that teachers have used the magnets to model and explain physics, biology, and geometry concepts, and that benefits like that need to be considered too. So now, the magnets are back on the market. Learn more at centerforamericatv.org. Welcome back to the show. Did you get your flu shot this fall? I know Peter did, and since it always seems to make me sick, I elected again to decline. Either way, fortunately, it doesn't seem that this is developing into a bad flu season, at least for people. But I came across an item about flu in dogs, something I wasn't aware of, and this year, a highly contagious strain of flu is spreading across the nation. Dr. Robert Reed is with us. Robert is medical director of VCA Rancho Mirage Animal Hospital in Rancho Mirage, California. Welcome back to the program, Robert. 
Thanks, Lori. Good to talk to you. Thanks. So dogs get the flu. I wasn't aware of that. That's right. Yeah, canine influenza virus um, has been around as far as we know for 10 years, maybe a little bit longer. Uh, we know of two different strains. Um, one has been around since about 2005. The one that you spoke of was just identified last year, last spring, um, and it's been moving around the country in patches. We've seen it pop up mainly in urban areas. Um, it's possible that it's more widespread than we know because a lot of dogs that get it may not be diagnosed with it and they may recover and never be it may never be tested for flu virus, but we do think that it's spreading and that it's becoming more of a concern. Canine influenza hasn't really been around long enough for many dogs to have developed immunity to it. So essentially any dog that gets exposed to it is, is going to contract the virus. And, and probably from what we know, about 80% of those are going to get sick to some extent. But the the degree of illness varies a lot, kind of like it does with people who have the flu. Some of them will only have mild symptoms like fever, maybe not eating, nasal discharge or runny eyes, coughing is a big symptom. But a few of them, and this is probably 5 to 8% of those that, that develop symptoms, a few of those will, will get pneumonia or more significant symptoms, like some people might develop severe symptoms from the flu. Based on the t statistics that we have right now, which are fairly sparse, less than 1% of them would actually die from symptoms associated with the flu. And we don't really know for sure, but it's probable that dogs, certain types of dogs may be more vulnerable than others, like with people, dogs that have other health problems uh, that are of advanced age may have compromised immune systems. They may be more vulnerable to the more serious symptoms uh, than others, and so we might take more precautions, such as vaccination, uh, with those types of animals. Are certain breeds susceptible? We haven't really found any correlation with certain breeds, but as you, you might have guessed, our, our understanding of canine influenza viruses is, is still evolving. I think there's a lot that we we don't fully understand, and, and it's easy to see how, how dog owners might get a little confused and frustrated with some of the information that comes out on it because it's not not always precise and not every veterinarian agrees on the degree of risk that each pet faces. But I think it's fairly safe to say that dogs who have other health issues who are living in or traveling to an area where uh, canine influenza has been diagnosed or has been prevalent, those dogs should probably seek vaccination and do whatever they can to prevent uh, developing the disease or at least developing severe symptoms of it. And, and also it might be reasonable to take precautions against exposure, um, just like you would, uh, like a person would if they were concerned about picking up the flu. In other words, a dog, uh, an owner of a dog may want to keep them away from areas where a lot of dogs congregate and may avoid uh, shows, uh, boarding facilities, grooming facilities, not necessarily because any area is particularly high risk in itself, but those dogs that visit those areas may be contagious, and you wouldn't want to expose your dog to dogs you don't know if you can avoid it. Uh, unfortunately and frustratingly, mo the dogs seem to be most contagious when they just get the disease, so they may not have many symptoms. 
you may not even know that a dog that you're around has the, the flu virus. And so you want to be especially careful in taking your dog around unknown areas where dogs congregate, particularly if you have a dog with other health issues. How is it transmitted? The same way that it's transmitted with people, uh, through sneezing, casual contact, even from surfaces, handling surfaces. The dogs are usually going to pick it up by breathing it in or licking the virus, uh, but fairly easy to catch. It doesn't require direct transmission, but pretty close contact. The virus doesn't survive well in the environment. So, you know, a surface that's been recently contaminated or direct contact to a sneeze or a cough is usually the source. So taking my dog to the dog park, that would be a low risk? I think taking your dog to the dog park is a moderate risk because there's going to be casual contact enough where uh, virus transmission could occur through a sneeze or a cough. So I think dog parks, when there's an outbreak of flu going on, or if you knew there was an outbreak of flu in your community, your area, you probably want to avoid dog parks. And what's the treatment? The treatment is supportive like it is with flu for people. There's no specific treatment to kill the virus. You're generally going to use fluid therapy when a dog is dehydrated, antibiotics if they develop a secondary infection, and most of it is just nursing care. So when should I worry? There there are statistics available now that suggest that canine influenza has been diagnosed in California and in many other states. Both strains of canine influenza in California have been diagnosed. And if you knew that it was present in your area, you probably want to take notice and take measures to protect your dog through vaccination. If you were going to be traveling to an area where you knew that those outbreaks were occurring, if you follow the media reports in that area, then you can get your dog vaccinated. But to be honest, you know, vaccine against vaccination against flu is available to any dog in the same way that people can get flu vaccinated. Some people choose to do that. Some don't for reasons of their own. And the same is true with dogs. If you're a person that likes to be particularly cautious about exposure to such viruses or contracting diseases, then you can get your dog vaccinated for, for, feline, or for canine influenza, and I think that's a good idea. But many people are more comfortable with risk or they have a healthy dog. They may not have the same comfort with vaccinations that others, uh, and they may choose not to. Personally, I think the vaccines that are available are safe and effective, and they're the best that we have right now. How about cats or other companion animals? Do they get the flu? You know, um, this virus that we see in the U.S. has never been demonstrated to transmit to any other species. There is a canine flu virus that's been identified in Asia that in some cases has been transmitted to cats but in fairly specific circumstances. It's never been shown to happen in the U.S. with the two viruses that we know to have, that we know we have here. Dr. Robert Reed, thank you. You're welcome. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Hi, it's Dr. Lori from Animals Today Radio, and here's your Animals Today fun fact for today. Do you ever wonder why your cat bumps their head against you? Well, that unexpected butting of her head is known as head bunting, and this is your kitty's way of bonding with you. She is identifying you as one of her friends, and head bunting is her way of sharing her love and affection. 
And this is your Animals Today fun fact for today. 